Hi everybody, it's Derek, and this is Foreign Exchanges for August 7th, 2019. I'm going to be joined here in a couple of minutes by Ryan Cooper, uh, returning champion Ryan Cooper. I'm very glad to have him back. Uh, Ryan is the, a national correspondent for The Week magazine. He's also got his own podcast, Left Anchor, uh, which I highly recommend you check out. Uh, you can find it at leftanchor.podbean.com. I'll have the link in the show description. Uh, you can also support them at Patreon, uh, patreon.com slash leftanchor. Uh, and you can find them on Twitter at leftanchor. I'll have all those things in the show description. Uh, Ryan has written a piece. He writes pieces, you know every day uh, but, but he's recently written one uh called the the old democratic trade paradigm is collapsing good riddance uh, and i wanted to have him on to talk about that it's based on uh last week's debates uh and and some of the the things that elizabeth warren in particular said about uh free trade quote-unquote free trade uh and trade is a is such an important aspect of foreign policy and it's one that i know i don't give enough attention to because it's not an area that i'm really that well versed in uh so i'm glad to have ryan on because he is pretty well versed in in that area uh and he can help us to unpack the uh, what the old democratic trade paradigm was and what it's becoming uh, or what it's it may become uh, if people like elizabeth warren and bernie sanders have anything to say about it uh, so I will, uh, get him on the Skype here in just a moment and we'll start the interview. All right. I'm here with Ryan Cooper, a national correspondent for the week magazine and co-host of the left anchor podcast. Ryan, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. So I wanted to talk to you about a piece you wrote last week. The old democratic trade paradigm is collapsing. Good riddance. Uh, trade is something uh, we don't do enough of here at foreign exchanges. So uh, I'm very happy to have you on to talk about it because it's not an area that uh, that I feel well versed in. But I know that you are uh, and you've been writing about it. And uh, it's an interesting time here in the Democratic campaign to be talking about this kind of stuff. So uh, I wanted to dig into this piece and I thought. Uh, we should start with this amazing anecdote that you have here in the first paragraph uh, about Thomas Friedman, the New York Times columnist, who wrote a column or who said in, in 2006, he said, quote, I wrote a column supporting the CAFTA, the Caribbean Free Trade Initiative. I didn't even know what was in it. I just knew two words, free trade. Which is amazing. Like he didn't he really didn't know what was in it because it's not the Caribbean Free Trade Initiative. It's this the Central American Dominican Republic Free Trade Agreement. But yep. anyway, uh, um, he literally didn't know what was in it, but just latched on to the idea of free trade. Uh, can you walk us through how we got to the point where f the the concept of free trade became so overwhelmingly uh, predominant in kind of elite discourse, political discourse, to the point where people see that phrase and, and their brain shuts off. It's just like, oh, yeah, free trade. That's great. Excellent. How did that happen? Oh, boy, that's a that's a that's a complicated <laughs> one. And I I should preface this by saying, you know, I, I've I've read a, a fair bit about this and and uh written about it but i'm certainly not like a credentialed expert in like the economics of trade so you know um no but you know the politics of this i think pretty well of how it yeah it came to be so overwhelmingly predominant in in both parties really for a while but but with the rise of donald trump there's you know it's kind of shifted in the direction of the democrats um, yeah, yeah, just a little caveat. And and I think that your question, it really doesn't have anything to do with economics per se. It has to do with, with uh, I guess I would sort of pin it on two things. There, there's, with the, uh, the rise of neoliberalism, you know, there, it, it, it presents this sort of glittering um, 
uh, utopian ideal of an economy which just like sort of this clockwork universe economy that just works by itself everything is sorted out you don't ever have to mess with it and all of the good things just happen automatically um and uh you know this this was like one of the big uh sort of attractions of the gold standard like one of the things about the gold standard is that everything's just supposed to happen automatically um, and for one reason or another, that seems to be like very attractive to, to, to certain people. And um, the other thing is that free trade, quote unquote, and we might get into what that actually means, uh, is enormously profitable for uh, the, you know, executive class, the, the, the capitalists, the bourgeoisie, as it were, the owners and the, and the top managers of, of corporations, because... It allows you to, you know, just play with the whole, you know, human society across multiple, um, you know, countries to get your your costs down to the absolute minimum possible extent. And, um, you know, on the other hand, maybe uh, get certain favorable rules for yourself, you know, IP uh, regulations for some reason get folded under free trade um, that are also profitable and and so you know you, you it, it's I think hardly ever the case that it's sort of like people being bought off you know but that money gives it a gives a big wind behind the sails of that type of thinking I would say you know you have the you, look at what the Koch brothers do with like economics departments you know they they big give these big donations you know sometimes they're actually predicated on ideological control sometimes it's implicit to say oh yeah well you know we, we, you're gonna hire the types of people that we want and then those people they find themselves having the career rails greased and um you know become prominent in the field and and so you get a sort of hermetic you know uh intellectual enclosure around this idea you know and this is what Gramsci might call a sort of hegemonic ideology where it's just sort of taken as a given that free trade is good by definition and even the people who are supposedly studying it study it with the premise that it's good built into the questions that they're trying to answer and so you know it, it, it that that sort of uh, thing can be really powerful until you know, the, the downsides of it become too big to ignore, which I would say that's a pretty much where we're at now. The the concept here, I mean, free trade for a long time, and I, I, we'll get into the ways that I think both kind of uh, intentionally and inadvertently Donald Trump has kind of changed the conversation about some of these things. Um, but prior to Trump, I mean, this was orthodoxy across both parties, basically. I mean, the, the difference, I would say, uh, between the Republican approach to free trade and the Democratic Party approach to free trade was the Democrats uh, were willing to throw in a little job training for people who were inevitably going to lose their jobs uh, because of free trade, kind of free trade uh, agreements and what that does to uh, to businesses in, in the U.S. Uh, um, but can you take us through when you say the old democratic trade paradigm uh, is ending? What 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 was the old democratic trade paradigm? Well, the the. Uh... And did it ever work? Like, did the job training ever actually help anybody? I don't think there's a lot of evidence that it did, but... but go oh, ahead. no, no. It, you know, it. Um, the studies on this show that, that the overall effect of all these trade deals um, are, are, are not that big, uh, but the, the, the harms are really concentrated, you know, so you would have stuff like a washing machine factory that would be sent to Mexico and then one, you know, medium sized city would just be absolutely wrecked. Um, but, uh, uh, the, the, to, to answer your question, the, the trade paradigm was more or less 
what Thomas Friedman says, free trade is good by definition. What is meant by free trade is lowering um, tariff barriers to nothing, as close to nothing as, as you can get. And then, you know, over the years, as that basically became the reality, it also became uh, the sort of Washington consensus, um, sort of like sort of 10 stipulations of that originally. But it was it was, uh, you know, the the uh, countries need to keep their their deficits low. They need to they need to do lots of austerity in, in case of, you know, financial crisis. They need to. um you know, have a, a balanced trade. Uh, they they need to uh, open their their. Aside from tariffs, you know, they're also I, I would say even more importantly than tariffs, there's there's uh, financial regulations on the movement of capital across borders, and that is really important. You know, um, because you can have on the one hand foreign direct investment, where like a foreign company like builds a factory or something in your uh, your you know country and then there's these flows of hot money that that can that can go you know like like uh, like uh, lots of German capital flowing to Greece and Spain in the um, mid 2000s uh, you know during the whole kind of housing boom thing um, and in the previous trade regime, before there were pretty strict controls on on capital being allowed to flow across borders, but most of that was all torn down. And the, you know, again, the theory is the capital will automatically flow to the place where it gets the biggest return. This turns out to be not true at all, but you know, the assumption is what count counted. Um, and uh, you know, there's a there's a whole bunch of other stuff. It started to get weird towards the end of it. You know, um, there there is this this thing called investor dispute, investor state dispute settlement, which is which was a thing that started getting in uh, built into uh, free trade agreements in the '90s, I think. And basically, this is just a private legal system where corporations can sue governments. Importantly, you can't go the other way. State can't states can't sue investors, and there's no appeal. And the um, the the tribunal there's three judges I think typically that that judge these things, and they're usually the you know closely connected to the same kind of corporate interests who are levying the case in the first place, and you know the states rarely lose them and their loss is heavily correlated with uh, how how weak and uh, small they are in the international arena of course the u.s they rarely even bother suing them but like canada's got a whole bunch of of judgments against it for environmental regulations and little bitty countries as well um and that one doesn't have anything to do with trade at all. It's like, what the fuck is this? It's, you're not trading anything. <laughs> and then finally, there's harmonious regulations, like um, uh, to say uh, intellectual property and so forth, to say that uh, you know the, the foreign companies have to respect the IP of other countries, specifically the U.S. and the IP of like drug companies who want to soak the AIDS victims in Southern Africa for every last penny. And, um, you know, Bill Clinton tried to do that until there was a massive backlash. Uh, and that and that again, that's a restriction on trade. You know, that's to say that the, the if you're thinking like a true libertarian and be like a, a patent at all is ought to be infringing the market. You know, here's a government monopoly on who's allowed to produce things. How, how is that justifiable? Um, and, you know movies uh pharmaceutical companies uh music and so on like you you see the interest there and why this sort of got bundled in under the free trade umbrella but that was kind of the the uh consensus model and that was why you know bill clinton pushed nafta through over the um majority of his own caucus in the in congress and uh the majority of the american people in opinion polls they were, you know, they thought that was part of the political economy that they needed to really get on board with. You've hinted at this with the, you know, you've, you've already brought up the these 
courts that that basically exist to allow companies to sue uh, countries for for you know regulating them too harshly, I guess. Um, but in general, like if you actually take a step back and consider what free trade should mean, just sort of uh, the way it you know the way the those words work together. Uh, how much of this stuff actually has to do with free trade? Like, why do austerity economics get bundled up into this? Uh, you know, is there any logic behind that? Or is it just sort of like uh, throwing all the neoliberal wish list into a big bag and slapping this nice sounding label on it and, and kind of grouping it, you know, uh, into this into one thing so you're not forced to justify each piece of what can be a very kind of brutal economic system. Yeah, well, I don't know. Some people might disagree in, in, in putting this sort of Washington consensus stuff in there. Um, and maybe that's just more neoliberalism writ large. But, you know, the definitions are fuzzy at the edges. Um, and, and, you know, ISDS courts certainly are part of these trade deals, and they don't have anything to do with trade. Um, so I would say, you know, the answer is just that, like, it's sloganeering. You know, it's it's people saying, you know, this sounds great. Free trade. Hey, who doesn't like free stuff, man? We're going to get cheaper avocados from Mexico. And um, and then you just stuff that category full as full of your own personal beneficial shit as you possibly can. And, you know, hope nobody looks at it. And hey, here's Thomas Friedman, one of the premier columnists in the country. He doesn't even know what the agreements are called, let alone what's in them. So like, you know, it's, for a while there, I think it was super easy to smuggle all kinds of crap into these deals. And we're only <laughs> just now, you know, sort of taking a second look. Well, so, okay, let, let's talk about that. I think, you know, again, I, I'm sort of putting off the discussion of how Donald Trump has factored into this for later. But uh, as you suggested earlier, we've kind of hit the point uh, where, and the election of Donald Trump reflects this to to some degree, uh, we've hit the point where it's become impossible to continue like massaging the outcomes of this free trade regime that we've been you know pushing for uh, the last three decades or so. Uh, what have been those outcomes, and and what's the been the sort of cumulative effect that's put us where we are now um the the outcomes uh yeah i mean as i was saying earlier it sort of not too large in terms of the aggregate you know american economy even before the the 1970s you know the the automation was just slowly getting rid of manufacturing workers um but what happened in the free trade years was that that process dramatically accelerated, um, especially, you know, there's NAFTA in the 90s. And then in 2000, China gets permanent normal trade relations with the U.S. And they sort of passed that without even thinking about it twice. Um, and in the four years after that, I think the number of manufacturing workers in the country in the U.S. dropped by about 20 percent. Um, and it's never, you know, it, it's it's fallen further in every subsequent recession, starting to tick back up, you know, in the in the last uh, five to six years. But, you know, it just did tremendous damage to the industrial base. Um, all sorts of factories got moved to uh, Mexico or China or Vietnam or, you know, or other countries in in whole or in part, you know, a big a big feature of the, you know, neoliberal trade paradigm is this just wasteful in terms of real resources, uh, mo incredible movement, you know, where they'll like do like take some raw materials from the U.S., ship them to China, assemble them and then ship them back to the U.S., um, you know, just because you have the cheap labor over there. But you've shipped something like, you know, 20,000 miles, how much that must cost in uh you know, in, in uh, gasoline or whatever they use in those big cargo ships, um, diesel, presumably. It's got to be very, very big. Um, 
And so, you know, big core of this kind of classic democratic constituency there, working unionized, working class, uh, manufacturing jobs, just vanished like a fart in the wind. And I would say the other the other thing is kind of counterfactual, but one of the big, you know, considerations that used to be part of how American policymakers thought about, uh, you know, trade policy is like, well, you know, national security, I guess you might call it, broadly speaking, or like the usefulness of certain industries to to the government, to the society at large, you know, preserving your expertise and so on. Like having a big car manufacturing um, industry there, uh, it, it provides a lot of, you know, experience, throws off lots of extra value. And then supposing there's a war, you can repurpose those car plants to, you know, make tanks or something like that. You know, that was the thinking back in the day. And what the neoliberals allowed to happen was all of the sort of second generation electronics manufacturing uh, all went all got developed in China and Korea and Taiwan. I mean, in a few other places, there's still a little bit of it over in the U.S., but not very much at all. All the big stuff goes over there, including, you know, the big U.S. company, which is Apple. They're built their stuff in China. And, um, you know, one result of that is that you have these critical industries in a country which is like, you know, kind of hostile to the U.S. and and <laughs> certainly you would say untrustworthy. You know, any any com- uh, a country that's got like a sort of just total surveillance state and they have a million people in camps and so on and. Uh, you know, that could potentially leverage their control of that to, you know, conduct a espionage or something. I don't, you know, not want to scaremonger about this to say, ah, oh, the red Chinese are coming to get us or anything right, like that. Right. But just that, like, it really, you know, might be useful to have some of this capacity here in the U.S., so, you know, in case of some kind of dispute or something. Right. I mean, it's 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 contradicting. Like it's it's internally inconsistent. You've got a the Pentagon, you know, planning for a war with China at the same time that we're, you know, pursuing trade policies that, as you say, have have left big chunks of strategic kinds of industries. Uh, you know, we're dependent on China not just for manufacturing but for supplying. Uh, rare earth minerals and and you know th- the components that are needed for these these things and and you know like it's just weird to see that happening like you you you're worried that you might have to go to war with this country but you're also basically you've made yourself dependent on that country for for many things that are fundamental to your your military operations it's it's a funny thing yeah and that and and even in the case of actual military contracts you know are 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 sometimes you know partly outsourced to chinese companies and then they make this big fuss over like huawei phones maybe being infected with spyware like well what the hell did you expect it's a (laughs) dictatorship you know um and uh you know i mean i would say I, it seems to me that a lot of the a lot of the noise about how we're we need to prepare the war with China is just like oh don't let that defense budget go down, buddy. We gotta we gotta like ISIS seems to be sort of collapsing, so we gotta find a new enemy. Let's build fourteen more aircraft carriers that don't work. Right, but right. It is also you know like a defensible uh, opinion to say that we need to you know there there needs to be some of this in terms of our trade policy, keeping it onshore just in case, and because it is more efficient that way in terms of climate change, at least. And it provides lots of benefits for the citizens of the country who would have jobs manufacturing this stuff, you know? So, the yeah, ne- neoliberal record here, really not good. <laughs> the other side of this coin uh, is the impact that these free trade agreements have had on the country's 
to which some of these places, these factories and these operations have moved. Uh, and one of the arguments you get from, I think, generally well-meaning, maybe not always well-meaning, uh, liberals, you know, people who are Democratic Party minded, uh, when you bring up the the harm that that free trade agreements have had or have caused in manufacturing communities in the United States is oh but uh, they've brought jobs and and growth to all these other places where people were in even worse shape uh, but you you know mention in the piece and and I think it's it's a story that not many people uh, hear often enough. Uh, that hasn't always been a good thing. I mean, you know, in Mexico, in Central America, you know, there's, uh, you know, obviously Donald Trump is obsessed with the uh, the migrant caravans. There are people leaving Central America because those economies have been uh, smashed in some ways by CAFTA. I mean, you know, it kind of set down these uh, these factories that don't have any rules. There are no safeguards for labor or wages or anything or safety or anything like that. Uh, and it, it, it does things to those the communities where these places wind up. Can you talk a little bit uh, about that? Yeah, yeah. Um, and you know, again, there's I'm probably leaving some stuff out here because I, I I'm not super conversant on the effects on like Honduras. But um, certainly you can say with respect to, you know, Mexico and and, you know, most of the rest of, of Central America, uh, they they do have, you know, you do find these factories moving over. You know, there's a lot of electronics manufacturing in Mexico, actually. Oh, biggest, I think they the biggest source of televisions in the um, in the world now. Um, these uh, maclia, um, macleadores, I believe, uh, the 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 name for it. Um, and any, but the the issue is that um, number one, you know, they're being exploited for wage you know cheap labor right that's the whole point of moving this factory to another country is that the the prevailing wage is cheap and so that comes with an implicit threat that if wages go up too much well we'll just move it somewhere else and the political economy that i think these these trade deals create is that it, it tends to reinforce that kind of stuck in low wage paradigm where you're exporting to another market and not trying to develop your own internal market which is which is how countries get you know uh, uh, up to the really higher rungs on the development ladder i would say um you know you can you can easily get trapped in the sort of sweatshop economy if you don't you know where you you have low wages and you can't get uh you know higher value products going because the people the citizens of the country don't have enough money to afford them you know sort of sort of stuck because you're standing on your own uh hands type of thing um and at any rate you know also these foreign foreign companies uh are much less accountable to the to the democratic you know uh system of of that country you know they're they're uh, american companies or or transnational you know sort of above politics and so it's it's much harder for the like the mexican government to say to you know lg or whoever like like you you got to treat our people better um because they're just you know they don't have a lot of assets there in the country and they could just easily pack up and leave and if you look at you know mexico has continued to grow since uh since nafta was passed but it grew faster beforehand um so you can't point to any sort of rapid acceleration um and then you know at the same time one of the big effects of the, all this removal on of of uh controls on capital movement is that you created just tons of huge financial crises there's one in mexico in the 90s there's one in east asia in the late 1990s you know, you get these markets going up hot, um, all the, uh, you know, all the Wall Street dumbasses sort of pile into it at once. Everybody's making a big profit, you know, then it collapses and they all pull out. You know, one of the big factors in the East Asian crisis was that uh, the Wall Street people didn't have any idea which country was which, really. And so it was like once the 
uh, got started in Thailand. I think it was just out of everywhere. We're pulling out of Singapore and and Taiwan and and Vietnam as well. Um, so you know, sort of created contagion from the outside. It was imposed it on them. And well, that Thailand, screwed. Taiwan. I mean, it's easy to get these places confused. <laughs> Who's keeping track? <laughs> and that, uh, and you know, that really screwed up their their growth for for years and years. And um, you know, same thing with Mexico. You know, it took them a long time to recover from that uh, their their uh, crisis. Um, and then the final thing I'll say is that the the one, you know, sometimes neoliberals point to China as the big. F- you know, neoliberal success story as they have developed a sort of market economy um, and grown really fast over the last 20 years. But the thing is, they never bought into all the neoliberal stuff. You know, some of it, like they wanted the free trade because it was very advantageous for them personally, but they never accepted the, the capital stuff. And they've always kept a very close uh, uh, control over, you know, their own domestic industries. They own tons and tons of, of capital within the country. And, um, you know, they manipulated their currency to, to suppress the suppress the value of it so that their exports are more competitive. And, you know, basically taking these, these dumbasses like Thomas Friedman for a ride, you know, developing in a way that bears some similarity to how the U.S. developed itself back in like the 1800s, where they're like, "Uh uh-uh, we're not letting British imports in here. It's going to ruin our manufacturing base. And then while, you know, uh, just America just sort of opened itself up. It's like, yeah, take the the silver, the China. What do you got? (laughs) Right, whatever you want. It's yours. It's innovation, baby. So talk about what the new emerging kind of uh, democratic paradigm is. This is something I know your your piece talks uh, about Elizabeth Warren uh, or sort of focuses on her. Uh, you know, Bernie Sanders has talked about, uh, you know, criticized these free trade deals heavily. Um, what is the, the new kind of approach that seems to be uh, emerging uh, in this primary? Um, I would say there's, there's the one big thing, uh, is that they would change the way Warren at least would change. And I think Sanders largely agrees. They would change the, the way that, that new trade deals and existing trade deals are negotiated. Um, because the way that they work now is according to the, the 1974 trade act, which basically it allows for this thing called fast track, right? Which is secret negotiations. And then Congress gets a like up or down vote on the final product, Um, you know, sort of doing an end run around any sort of democratic deliberation, letting the technocrats handle everything. Unsurprisingly, the, these uh, negotiating teams end up, you know, stuffed with business lobbyists. And so, you know, Warren would have them conducted out in the open and she would change uh, the the priorities of, you know, what you're trying to achieve with trade deals, not just like doing free trade for the sake of it. But, um, you know, she wants to prioritize, um, you know, labor rights and income, both in the U.S. and out uh, as, along with human rights. Um, she wants to clap, clamp down on tax havens. So she would add a... Um, she wouldn't do trade deals with any country that refused to harmonize their tax regime, basically to prevent, you know, tax cheat tax havens uh, from from sort of taking advantage of these type of deals. Um, and then she would add a, uh, a tax on carbon, a border tax on carbon, basically, which would charge, you know, imports based on what they you know, their carbon emissions um, to prevent stuff from, you know, from like saying, suppose we did a big carbon tax or something in the, in the U.S. And in response, you know, companies just packed up and moved to, you know, Singapore or wherever that some place that was had no regulations on carbon. And so just did the same thing back then and then ship them in the U.S. Well, you know, you could prevent that by charging them exactly what, you know, you they would have been charged had they had their operations in the U.S. And um, 
you know, a, a, a um, all in all, you know, it's, it's not a completely worked out, you know, and I've, I've left a few things out, of course. Um, but I would say in general, you know, it's, it's, it's focusing trade back on, you know, what, like, it's just a tool, you know, and it, and it can be good and it can be bad. And so, you, you know, you should do it insofar as you can achieve the objectives that you want and not just to have as much shipping around the globe as you possibly can get, you know, cause that really doesn't help anybody except maybe the shipping industry, I guess. Um, and yeah, I would say there's maybe, there's one big kind of question mark um, Warren's talked about this a little bit, but I haven't really seen any sort of consensus developing about what to do. And that's the, 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 the dollar as reserve currency, right? So, you know, this all, all, well, not all, but like, like three quarters, I think, or maybe two thirds of international transactions are denominated in dollars, right? And so that creates a huge demand for dollar-denominated assets above all uh, U.S. government debt. And um, that's a kind of advantage for the U.S. in some ways because you can just basically run deficits and import stuff for free forever. Um, but on the other hand, uh, you know, it makes our currency, it, it pushes up the value of the currency and, and it makes our exports less competitive. And so it harms our manufacturing and also you know um, if you're running a big trade deficit that means you're exporting your demand you know your your spending to other countries you know who are who are benefiting from your market and and um, you know Keynes had this idea back in the day that you could have an international currency that was only used between nations to settle your accounts he called it like a bank and so everybody could join up with this international currency union and then you could you could have sort of semi-fixed exchange rates that would um, allow people to trade and then you settle up with uh, with Bancor at the end of the day um, and if you're if you're if you've got a deficit you know then you'd have to you know maybe cut cut back a little bit on your your imports but also if you had a surplus you'd have to cut back too, because what you want is everybody to be pretty close to imbalance. Um, the way that the system works now works in big quotation marks, really, um, really punishes people for having a deficit, but incentivizes people for having a surplus. So you have places like Germany really patting themselves on the back for having a big surplus. Well, somebody has got to be buying all that crap and there's got to be a corresponding deficit in a bunch of other countries and really haven't, you know, nobody's really talking about that. What, what we, you know, you, one thing you could do is just, just issue tons of, of debt, you know, that, that people could, you know, other countries could, could uh, just pile up, but that, you know, that would be kind of unpopular, I think. Um, or it would sound weird. And so, you know, people won't do it, but we'll see, I guess there's a long time left in the primary. <laughs> I am my one of my pet theories is that we're taking care we're going to take care of this ourselves because the more fixated we are on slapping extraterritorial sanctions on countries that we don't like uh the less the rest of the world is going to be inclined to l l give us this power right to to use the dollar uh, as the reserve currency and give the United States this power over their own uh, decision making. But that's that's just my my theory. Um, yeah, possibly, you know, you I, you would think that people would be running for the exits, but they they really aren't. And I think the reason is that there's just nobody that could step in right now. You know, you have the euro, but the euro is just a f cluster f beyond imagining and is is also just catastrophically mismanaged in terms of its currency um the the fed bailed their asses out big time in the financial crisis you know um, people forget this but you know germany and france and the uk uk is not on the euro of course but but um most of the big eurozone countries and japan and and the uk they they all had huge dollar denominated debts 
and no re- dollar reserves to or very little to to um, to handle those. And what what Ben Bernanke did in the pinch was just let them print dollars. You could he said you, the European Central Bank and the Bank of uh, of UK whatever it's called um, and uh, Bank of Japan, a couple of others could print their currency and exchange them for dollars in limitless quantities. And wow. so they bailed out their banks with that money and then eventually wound them, wound those positions down. Um, but, uh, you know, the Euro, Euro, European Central Bank did not extend that same uh, um, courtesy to, you know, uh, members in Eastern Europe or who were, you know, slated to join the Eurozone or, or people, in, you know, Greece, which had sort of similar problems. Right. Um, just let them drown. And so, you know, Greece almost came out of the, out of the, um, Euro some time ago, the UK is leaving the European union, you know, it just doesn't look stable. And then on the other hand, the Chinese, you know, they're still focused on trying to beggar thy neighbor, the rest of the world, you know, they're, they're not really, uh, in a position to step in and say, okay, you buy, uh, we're, we're going to run a gigantic trade deficit uh, indefinitely to allow everybody to have as many uh, uh or however you say that forever. Um, right. So, and I think, yeah, there's, there's two, I don't think, you know, there's, there's sort of too much uh, suspicion about, you know, China's currency, which they insist they don't, artificially manipulate but you know there's sort of too much kind of global yeah. suspicion Bullshit. that they are manipulating it to, for people to yeah. uh, to turn to that as a as a reserve currency the two things that that uh stuck out at me you know as i was reading your piece and sort of the elite response to uh the way that elizabeth warren was talking about trade um are the deeply kind of anti-democratic uh, underpinnings of the debate about trade this fear that if you uh you know put the details of these deals out for the public to see and if you had congress kind of openly debate them and vote on them that it would somehow uh that these things would all you know be torn apart that they would never survive that process which I think says something about uh, what you think is happening in these deals, even if the people who are you know saying these things don't realize it. It says something about what they uh, they really think is is going on here. And the other thing that struck me was the overuse in the same way that I think people are starting to recognize. Uh, Republicans kind of use the word socialism for anything. It doesn't matter how far left you are; they're still going to call it socialist. Uh, the word protectionism has gotten has gone so far off the rails from what it used to mean which was you know high tariffs and uh kind of deliberately blocking your your uh, economy or your market from uh other countries now it's you know anything that you want to do to kind of protect kind of universal labor privileges or universal human rights or to tackle things like tax evasion or environmental climate change type issues anything any move in those directions is immediately labeled protectionist uh and that's bad uh but again it's sort of like free trade became this empty slogan I think protectionism is now an empty slogan. It has no real meaning to it because nobody's actually calling for anything uh, like real protectionism. They're just asking for uh, a, a different way of going about this same process of, of conducting commerce with the rest of the world. Uh, is there, a, you know, did that did that strike you also? I mean, like, what what's sticks out to you the most about the way people? talk about these issues at again it's sort of the elite kind of pundit level yeah right the the um on the democracy thing you know that that's i think one of the sort of foundational tenets of of neoliberalism is that you need a technocratic elite who will run your clockwork economy make the 
the wise decisions, which are totally depoliticized, even though, of course, there's a big class interest there that's just never, that's just like sublimated. Um, and that, yeah, you, you can't allow the, the, the rabble or the rabble's elected representatives to be involved in negotiating trade deals that have a direct impact on their livelihoods and their standard of living. You have to let a bunch of University of Chicago economists uh, do it. And whatever they say is good by definition. Um, and, uh, you know, you see that also with uh, like the, the worship of central bank independence, that the central bank should be free of politics because, um, you know, what they'll do is juice the, the econ- juice the economy right before the election. And, um, you know, ca- then you'll get just skyrocketing inflation. And, you know, the the contempt for for the the people there is is also manifest because you you look at one of the things people hate they hate inflation you know a lot about as much as they hate uh, unemployment you know over rapid inflation that is you know people in the 70s used to just there there was mass protests over the mm-hmm. pr- price prices going up too much so yeah that just doesn't stand up to any scrutiny at all the idea that you can't have Congress involved because you'll get bad, bad trade deals. Number one, you know, they deserve to um, be, you know, be a part of the process. And number two, uh, the the last, you know, generations of trade deals is utter dog. Shit. Um, there's just, uh, you know, like we couldn't really do worse than than TPP and NAFTA. You know, these are horrible um and, um, yeah, I guess, you know, on the protectionism thing, yeah, it, it is it is remarkable. You know, I'm responding to this article by Dan Dresner, uh, a, a guy who famously in 2014, he wrote a book that said the system worked. It was an apologia for the, uh, uh, you know, response to the financial crisis, which notably did not include the word foreclosure once. Um, <laughs> a little but, oversight. Setting that aside, yeah, he he says that Warren's plan is more protectionist than Trump, and I think it's you know it's it's a ridiculous slogan. I mean, I think it is sort of fair to say that Trump is kind of instinctively protectionist because he's trying to do the beggar thy neighbor thing. He's he's saying he's trying to like dominate. You know, he only understands insofar as he understands anything zero sum negotiations. In order for us to win, somebody else has to lose. And so, you know, he's picking all these tariff fights. Um, but that's not Warren's basic approach, you know. And, and um, she, you know, she does want to sort of protect domestic industry and so on. But she also wants to help the working class in other countries, you know. Um, one reason is that if the working class... Uh, in you know Mexico or whatever has more money, they could buy more American imports. Um, you know that like these are the types of types of things that that lefty trade economists will will talk about constantly. Um, and uh, you know, I guess the 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 final <laughs> final comment on this 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 you know as protectionism as a being this like horrifying abuse this moral atrocity is that like. You know, you you in uh, as the president, as members of Congress or senators, representatives, you are supposed to be accountable to the the people of the United States. Mm -hmm. You know, Um, I I think that, you know, those folks should consider the welfare of foreigners as well, of course. But like sort of protecting the people is kind of the entire job description. And while, you know. (laughs) beggar thy neighbor trade policy is bad it doesn't seem completely out of line for 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 politicians to say like well you know i'm gonna try to get jobs for the american people like come on in other contexts you say that's like that's like the most anodyne good good thing you could say so i uh, to to wrap this up i do want to talk a little bit about Trump's record here. Um, I had, I got a question from somebody earlier in the week uh, about 
the trade war with China, which has really kind of dominated his trade agenda. I mean, you know, he pulled out a TPP and he's uh, doing NAFTA 2.0 and he's got negotiations with Japan and a couple other countries. But this trade war with China has been the sort of dominant feature of his uh, his administration on this front, I think. Uh, and the the question was basically like, what's the end game? And I I, I wonder uh, if you have a sense of what the like. The only thing that occurred to me was that he sees this number in his lizard brain, like he sees the trade deficit, and he doesn't like that, and he wants to get it down, and that's the end game. Like he's this, it's a very simple thing that he's able to latch onto and say, "This is bad, and I want to fix it." Um, so I wonder if you have uh, any better sense than than I do of that. And the second thing is, um, how much of our ability to sort of shed uh, or think, you know, kind of talk critically about the old paradigm of trade, the sort of dominant neoliberal free trade uh, agenda uh, is due to uh, the disruption that's been caused by Trump's election. Like I, I interviewed uh, Stephen Wertheim a couple of weeks ago. He's one of the co-founders of the uh, the Quincy Institute. And, and we talked about, uh, you know, sort of the challenge. There, there's an opening right now to challenge uh, the, the, the sort of dominant collective foreign policy consensus in part because of what trump i think inadvertently uh did to that consensus in the republican primary i mean when he he went after jeb bush and when you know kind of savagely went after the iraq war and uh you know kind of shook things up it shook things up to for him to do that and then to have people respond positively to that and and elect him um so you know if you could talk about that, like, is part of the the reason we're able to have this conversation and have it kind of be taken seriously? Is it because things are so shook up right now from from the uh, the twenty sixteen election? Um. Yeah. Okay. T- taking those in order, uh, the China end game, man, knows I, <laughs> I, 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 you know, your sense maybe is is a. That's a sounds like a pretty good guess to me. Um, I I, I kind of half suspect that Trump he just wants to try to bully the Chinese into giving up, you know, and just doing whatever he wants, which will be filled in later. Um, I mean, that's kind of the confusing thing to me is it's just not clear at all what he wants out of this. He's not making any sort of clear signals, um, and if. You know, I mean, from the American point of view, you're you're sort of like, what are you doing? But then you think from a Chinese point of view, what, you know, they don't even have anything to sort of negotiate with. Just this, this addled oaf. Um, <laughs> and so the end game, I mean, it just kind of looks like it's semi-spiraling out of control. Um just uh just you know bigger and bigger tariffs on either side and you know if insofar as the chinese you know they they convince themselves that you know they can't be uh you know seen to be giving in to trump um and they just keep keep raising this the ante and trump gets all whiny and defensive and does the same it's hard to know where it was stop honestly but He's also very lazy and stupid, so maybe he'll just kind of forget about it and give up, like, uh, and just you know, just go back to Colin Kaepernick and whatnot. <laughs> I do think this is an underrated thing. Like, like countries are not taking enough advantage of his laziness and the fact that if you just give him something that he can grab onto and say, "This is mine, and I did it, I won," he'll move on. Yep. Like, he'll move on to the next thing. I see this constantly, thinking that Trump must be planning something. Like, I've never seen in any indication that Trump has ever planned anything his entire <laughs> life. He's just a pure id creature and uh, reacting to stimulus, mainly what he sees on the TV. Um, but, yeah, so so your second question there, the disruption, I, I would say... I would say you're definitely right that 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 the the 2016 has a lot to do with it. Um, it's you know 
the how much of that resentment he could you know uh glom onto and uh you know activate there's i think a real latent desire for a more you know um um less neoliberal maybe you might say trade policy one that would prioritize american workers um or america first you might call it in 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 the trumpy language uh and I think that also, you know, it collided with a broader reconsideration of, of economic policy in general that's sort of been gathering steam after the 2008 crisis. You know, you, you had a moment in 2008 when the Keynesians came back and it was like, oh, God, the world's collapsing. We've got to do big fiscal stimulus, etc. But after that initial crisis, the forces of reaction regrouped and everybody was on austerity all the time. Um, and there was, you know, just, just you know, Europe, Europe still doing absolutely horribly compared to their pre-2007 trajectory. U.S. was somewhat better. Um, but I think that, that, cons- that sort of semi-consensus, that austerity is the way forward, that's kind of been crumbling away over time. You know, as like the up and comers, you know, publish their works like Thomas Piketty and um, Gabriel Zuckman and some of the old timers sort of retire or die off, lose their credibility. And I remember in uh, 2010, a bunch of economists and right wing, you know, pundits and wrote an open letter to Ben Bernanke in, in the Wall Street Journal. Now, this is 2009, I think. Well, when it, whenever it was, it was like, don't do your quantitative easing. You're going to get hyperinflation, guaranteed. And inflation has been absolutely dead flat for a decade. And um, I don't know. The reason is all these people are completely full of shit. And so the, <laughs> the uh, you know, the whole architecture of neoliberalism from, you know, fiscal policy to regulations to trade policy and, and everything else is being radically reconsidered and so yeah i think a lot you know gabriel zuckman as i mentioned he's one of you know uh the the he's quite young uh french economist who who has done a lot of great work on tax avoidance and he was praising warren's uh plan for for dealing with taxes and dealing with climate change specifically um and this guy's as respected as they come, I would say, in the field, broadly speaking. I mean, the American neoliberals don't like him, but, you know, he really knows his shit, and he's a, you know, credentialed economist. Um, and so, yeah, I would say that, that that's all coming together kind of at the same time as, as like, you know, on the other side of the spectrum, Bernie and Warren are, are pushing a different sort of moral and, and economic vision as well. And so... Yeah, from from both sides of the, you know, political divide, it's just kind of the the neoliberal consensus is just kind of cracking up in all directions. Well, hopefully we'll come out of it with with something that makes sense and something that's a little more uh, uh, pleasant for for American workers and a little more pleasant for the rest of the planet, uh, I think. Um, Yeah, we'll see how it goes. Fingers crossed. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Ryan, uh, Ryan Cooper, thank you so much. Uh, again, the podcast is Left Anchor, uh, and you can find Ryan's work at The Week magazine. I'll have links to all this stuff in the show description. Uh, thanks for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. It's a great talk. One last time, I'd like to thank Ryan Cooper for coming on and walking us through some of the emerging discourse around trade issues. Uh, Ryan is a national correspondent for The Week magazine, and that podcast, one more time, is Left Anchor. I will have relevant links in the show description for you guys. For subscribers, uh, I'm hoping to be back later this week for an episode to kick off our series on the Lebanese Civil War. For everybody, as always, thanks for listening, and I'll talk to you soon. Take care. Bye-bye.